Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 7. I mentioned off the top in this series that scholars generally recognize three sections in the Gospel of John. There is the introduction in chapter 1, there is the book of signs from chapter 2 to 12, and then there is the book of glory in chapters 13 to 21. So we're about halfway through the book of signs, and it very much appears here in chapter 7 that people are chewing on the signs and sayings of Jesus. They are giving him a hearing. They are debating back and forth. Some are responding positively and some are responding negatively. The emphasis appears to be on how people are hearing and on what basis they are accepting or rejecting Christ. Some are rejecting him superficially. He didn't go to the right schools. He didn't appear to come from the right town. He's a cultural outsider, and therefore there is no need to give him a fair hearing. Others are pressing past that. They are astonished at his teaching, and they are intrigued by his signs. They are leaning in. Interestingly, we also learn that those closest to Jesus are not at this point among those who are most receptive to his teaching. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, as the old proverb goes. And so it does go for Jesus. His brothers are among the last to embrace the fullness of who he is. Maybe there is comfort in that. Maybe it is helpful for you to realize that even Jesus had complicated family dynamics. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, I mentioned that one of the themes for this chapter is chewing on Jesus or deciding about Jesus. People are making choices, and John is reflecting on who is choosing what. By and large, John portrays the people of Jerusalem, and particularly the ruling class in Jerusalem, as having rejected Jesus out of hand, whereas the more provincial people in Galilee appear to be very interested and receptive. We often talk nowadays about how the cities are so strategic for the cause of the gospel, and that may well be the case. But it is interesting that in John's gospel, the people in the city are too arrogant and too class conscious to give Jesus a fair hearing. It's the country bumpkins. It's the backwards nobodies who get on board. They're the ones who march with Jesus up the hill to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The people in the city turn around and try to kill him. So the city is not a welcoming place for Jesus in John's gospel. That's not a proposal or a strategy. That's just an observation. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Just, just a quick note here. The feast of booths took place in late September, early October. So this would be about six months after the feeding of the 5,000. Just notice that. It's helpful to remember that the gospel writers were selective. 
They couldn't tell you everything that happened. They would run out of paper or parchment. They, they are being selective. They are picking events that they think best illustrate who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. Verse 3, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus' brothers think that him spending so much time in Galilee is going to backfire on him. If he wants to be the king of the Jews, then, they reason, he needs to spend more time in the capital city. You need a bigger stage, brother, if you are going to make it big. That's their advice. And it's sound advice according to the wisdom of the world. But Jesus is working not according to the wisdom of the world. God very rarely works according to the wisdom of the world. God often works where we least expect him to. God very often works through the weak to shame the wise, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer, of course, is yes, if God is in it. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, this verse causes some folks anxiety. I I suppose, read one way, this verse might seem to suggest that Jesus had lied to his brothers. He said he would not go to the feast, and then he did. But that isn't exactly what happened. Jesus said that he wouldn't go to the feast. He said it wasn't his time. He said his brothers could go at any time. But he was under divine compulsion. So he rejected their motivation for going and their suggested timing. But he never actually said that he wouldn't go under any circumstances. D.A. Carson provides some helpful clarity here. He says about verse 9, his not turns down his brother's request. It does not promise he will not go to the feast when the father sanctions the trip. And then about verse 10, he says, the assumption in this verse is that the father has signaled Jesus in some way. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem, leaving Galilee for the last time before the cross. Even so, his journey is marked by maximum discretion, exactly the opposite of what the brothers had in mind. So I don't think you need to feel anxious about these verses. Jesus is telling his brothers that he does not need a campaign manager, thank you. He is not working a plan or running for office. He is responding to the commands of the Father. He will go when and where he is told, and not until then. Jesus said this sort of stuff all the time. He he says this sort of stuff all throughout John's gospel. In chapter 5, he said in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Chapter 12, he says, For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command what to say and what to speak. So Jesus is very clear. He only says and does what he is told to say and do by the Father. By the way, just hear that. You know, sometimes we we talk accidentally 
unthinkingly. We talk as if there's this great gulf between the Son and the Father, right? The, 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 the Father is sort of wrathful and judgy, but the Son is merciful and compassionate and gracious. Jesus will permit no such distinction. He says, everything I say, I say at the behest of the Father. And so you can't draw distinctions between what the Father says and what Jesus says. Jesus says, they're, they're one and the same, right? He's saying, everything I do, everything I say is, is controlled. It's, it's, it's under divine compulsion. My itinerary is entirely under God's control. So he goes to the feast when God tells him to. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, here we see one of the reasons why the people in Jerusalem were skeptical of Jesus. He didn't go to the right schools. Now, they weren't saying he was ignorant. They were saying that he was unconventionally educated. He didn't study under the well-known rabbis. Most Jewish children went to what we would call primary school. Boys and girls were taught to read and write, but only select boys went on to higher education. And that took the form of private tutoring by a recognized rabbi. Jesus didn't go that route. And so he is viewed with suspicion within the city. He responds to those critics in verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Here Jesus makes a remarkable claim. He claims to have received his message directly from God. The rabbis, on the other hand, claim to have faithfully handed down traditions that stretch far back into the distant past. Some rabbis would even boast that they had never taught an original idea in their lives. They had faithfully stewarded and passed on the collective wisdom of the ages as preserved in the rabbinic tradition. That is not what Jesus did. In Mark's gospel, we frequently overhear the crowds remarking upon the noticeable difference in the way that Jesus teaches. Mark 1.22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Mark 1.27, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Jesus did not just repeat what other people had said. Jesus spoke directly on behalf of the Father. He presented himself as the Word of God. The one who speaks authoritatively into every situation. Nobody had ever seen that before. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus is saying something new, but he isn't pulling this new teaching out of the air, and he is not seeking to make a name for himself. Rather, he is seeking to make God known. Jesus is seeking the glory of God. He is saying that the more people know God and the better they see God, the more God will be glorified. 
That's what the mission of Jesus is all about. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here again, we're reminded that Jesus didn't break the law. He interpreted the law and applied the law consistently, correctly, and compassionately. He attended to its spirit and its words. He understood its meaning, having been the original author of it, whereas the scribes and rabbis had lost contact with that in the train of their traditions over the years. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Here John allows us to overhear the conflict of the crowd. There is a buzz in the air. Obviously, Jesus is a special person and an enlightened teacher, but is he more than that? That is the question of the hour. The signs are compelling, but there is also the matter of his birth to consider. Jesus is from Galilee, or so they think. It is true that Jesus grew up in Galilee, but it is also true that he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And what is interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't just correct the rumor right there. Why doesn't he pull out his birth certificate, as it were, and lay his particulars on the table? Why doesn't he do that? We know that the information was out there. Luke was not an eyewitness to these events. He says he was more of a historian and that he went around and did interviews and research. And he was able to learn the details of Jesus' birth. So it was not a hidden fact. But it wasn't something Jesus trumpeted. Why is that? And I just don't think you can avoid the sense that Jesus wanted people to lean in. He didn't try and make it as easy as possible for people. He wanted people to wrestle. He wanted them to dig a little deeper, and he made it possible for superficial people to reject him. Again, I am reminded that placement is a form of selection. Where you put the cookies does to some extent determine who will find them. Jesus laid some of these truths in certain places seemingly so as to exclude certain people, certain superficial, arrogant, self-satisfied people. It is very hard to escape that conclusion. Verse 32, 
The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Again and again in the Gospels, we observe Jesus being misunderstood. Often it happens when Jesus is speaking in a figurative or spiritual sense, and people assume he is speaking in a crassly literalistic sense, right? Remember, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And and the disciples think, he's mad at us for not packing sandwiches. No, he was speaking about hypocrisy and spiritual contagion. Well, here he's speaking about going into heaven. And the Jews think he's talking about going to Rome or Corinth or Bithynia Pontus. And John is pointing out that some people just can't understand what Jesus is saying. Their eyes are closed and their ears are stopped. Everything Jesus says is irritating gibberish to these people. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Here again we see Jesus wrapping himself in Old Testament imagery. Just like with the manna, just like at Jacob's well, Jesus is saying, all those Old Testament graces looked forward to something better. I am the something better. Water is good, but the Spirit is better. Jesus is promising here that when he ascends into heaven, he will send the Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of his disciples in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. That is better. Thanks be to God. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The crowd was fascinated, but also divided. Some say yes, some say no. Some have questions, some are convinced, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The leaders in Jerusalem reject Jesus superficially. They don't look into the question of his birth. They could have sent someone to Bethlehem. They probably could have accessed the Roman census records, but they don't. They've heard a rumor, and that rumor allows them to dismiss Jesus out of hand. Here we learn something very important. 
People decide before they consider the facts. They examine the facts to confirm what they already believe. The leaders have already decided that Jesus can't be who he says he is. And so they will only listen to things that confirm them in that decision. To steal a phrase from the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want Jesus to be who he says he is. So they hear what they want and they go away, each to his own house. One of the questions I find myself asking a lot is why do some people believe and some people not believe? How can two brothers in the same house or two sisters raised in the same family, how can two people look at the same Jesus and come to such radically different conclusions? How does that work? Why does that happen? John is interested in that as well. He seems to say two contradictory things. In the last chapter, he said that it was a God thing. He records Jesus saying in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So that sounds like a God thing. God has to draw you. He's got to open your eyes and turn your head and soften your hearts. It's a God thing. But then here in chapter 7, it, it looks like an us thing. It looks like the pride and the elitism and the superficiality of the Jerusalem authorities is to blame. So what is it? Well, it's both. We are responsible for the state of our heart, and we need God's help to believe. That is a mystery. That that is a, a complex and intricate doctrine. But it is the consistent teaching of the Bible. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.